This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on Fox News Rewind Financial Crisis 08. I personally have been buying stocks since the crash set in on Tuesday. And I have been urging everybody else who can do so to buy without going into debt. I can tell you this, that we have done many things which have helped the situation. This social security measure gives at least some protection to 30 millions of our citizens. Economic conditions in the country are good. There are 61 million people on the job. President Eisenhower, in a good-natured question-and-answer exchange, says the way to recover economic health is to buy intelligently. The time has come for a new economic policy for the United States. It's not my intention to do away with government. It is rather to make it work. Work with us, not over us. This Christmas, credit card purchases rose at a record rate. You start to see the froth, the excess, and the outrageous spending, and everybody thinks it's always going to last forever. And guess what? It never does. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Episode 2, Foreclosure. Thank you and good afternoon. Uh, I thank you all for coming to the formal ratification of a truly historic event. Senator Graham and Senator Sarbanes have actually agreed on an important issue. <laughs> During the Clinton administration, the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development incentivized banks to make loans in credit-deprived areas, essentially suggesting that the banking industry was discriminating against people from lower-income areas of the country. Co-anchor of America Reports on the Fox News Channel, Sandra Smith. Banks were essentially rewarded for making higher-risk loans. New HUD regulations then lowered the standards for down payments on a new home from the traditional 20% to 3% and eventually nothing. Over the past seven years, we've tried to modernize the economy and today what we're doing is modernizing the financial services industry, tearing down these antiquated walls and granting banks significant new authority. This will, first of all, save consumers billions of dollars a year through enhanced competition. It will also protect the rights of consumers. It will guarantee that our financial system will continue to meet the needs of underserved communities. 
something that the Vice President and I tried to do through the empowerment zones, the enterprise communities, the community development financial institutions, but something which has been largely done through the private sector and honoring the Community Reinvestment Act. When the Clinton administration came in, there had been this sort of desire to um, make housing, housing affordability across America as a, a, a prime component of, of, of politics. Senior advisor to Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, Gary Kaminsky. In the sense that we should do whatever we can, um, utilizing government uh, agencies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to um, expand home ownership. We are here today to repeal Glass-Steagall because we have learned that government is not the answer. We have learned that freedom and competition are the answer. This legislation uh, seeks to provide a statutory framework. It wasn't a question whether these affiliations were going to happen. They were taking place, but we needed to have an, an overarching framework, a responsible statutory framework within which the regulators could operate. Uh, we've given them sufficient authority. There's a big challenge in this bill for the regulators, and I see many of them in this room, so we're passing the baton over, as it were, to you as we move ahead now and make the changes in our financial services industry. I think the major change that went on in the 1990s uh, as it related to housing uh, included two things. Former CEO of Washington Mutual, Kerry Killinger. One is the federal government clearly put out a mandate to expand home ownership and over uh, various presidents, uh, they set goals of increasing home ownership by millions of millions of people. I am here today because we are taking action to bring many thousands of Americans closer to owning a home. Our government is supporting home ownership because it is good for America. It is good for our families. It is good for our economy. One of the biggest hurdles to home ownership is getting money for a down payment. This administration has recognized that. And so today I'm honored to be here to sign a law that will help many low-income buyers to overcome that hurdle and to achieve an important part of the American dream. The second is we saw a rising influence of, of loans being sold to Wall Street for securitizations and loans sold to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for uh, for their securitizations with a government guarantee on them. And what happened is is step by step, banks moved away from making loans uh, for their portfolio and frankly changed their underwriting standards away from what banks typically did to underwriting requirements set by the purchasers, which were Wall Street and the uh, and Fannie Mae and uh, and Freddie Mac. There were a number of changes in the 1990s that uh, affected the uh, the housing market. Former member of the Federal Reserve Board of Directors, Randall Krosner. Uh, one of the most important pieces was the development of the government-sponsored enterprises, uh, the GSEs, they're sometimes called. And there were two particular names, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, of these organizations. And what they did is they provided guarantees for mortgages, so of course that made it uh, cheaper to, to borrow. In addition, what they did is something called securitization. And so what that allowed for is whoever was originating the, the mortgage, whether it was a bank or a broker, 
what they could do is then sell them off into these packages. And so you'd have a hundred loans or a thousand loans in a particular package. And if you got them from around the country, you could get a reasonably well diversified set of, of loans. And there are a lot of people who are eager to invest in that. What we're trying to do here is to take a number of steps at once that will bridge the gap between where people currently are and getting into a home ownership situation, which is one they can afford and one they can sustain. Uh, we have no interest whatsoever in putting people into houses or into rental units that they can't afford or that they can't maintain the payments on. Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are special government-sponsored enterprises. So they are corporations, but they're not like regular corporations. Uh, their charters are from the federal government. And uh, they were publicly traded organizations like other, uh, like other uh, private companies on the stock market. But they had, in addition to the profit motive, a public purpose to provide for affordable, affordable housing. And so what they were doing is they were providing guarantees for mortgages. Uh, they set standards for mortgages. If mortgage had a certain standard that is uh, that the the family had put enough money down to start with, the family's credit rating was strong enough, uh, that their income was strong enough. Uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae would guarantee those uh, uh, those uh, those mortgages, and they also then helped to move those mortgages off of banks' balance sheets, because traditionally the bank would make the mortgage, hold on to the mortgage, and then eventually you know, the family would uh, would pay it off. Now what would happen is you'd uh, the, the bank would originate the mortgage, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae would provide the, um, uh, the guarantee, and then they could sell that mortgage off into the markets. Anyone who got in early or already owned a home saw their net worth increase. Flipping houses became a new source of income, and home builders had a hard time keeping up with demand. Mortgage originators and the banks who provided them with the credit all reaped profit from the increased economic activity. So inflation is low, interest rates are low, the Fed is gradually starting to raise them. And even when the Fed raises them, you know, the, the Fed manages just a small, a, a very short-term interest rate, and other interest rates tend to follow the Fed's lead. Senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, John Hilsenrath. But even when the Fed started raising interest rates, other other rates weren't moving. Mortgage loans, even as the Fed raised rates, mortgage rates stayed really low. And it was part because there was all this demand from overseas, and especially uh, China, for, to, to hold U.S. securities. Uh, so we had a housing boom. This all fed a housing boom. And that's where these subprime loans came into play. Host of Your World on the Fox News Channel and Cavuto, coast to coast on the Fox Business Network. Neil Cavuto. People were buying them because they would take all these risky assets, these risky loans, these uh, mortgage-backed obligations, or these collateralized loan obligations, and they would, uh, they would package them and sell them to to others who would buy them, unaware that 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 group of people were buying and, and companies that were buying those mortgages didn't realize that the, the mortgages underlying them, some of those people weren't paying them anymore. They, they they were not making payments regularly, or they were just defaulting altogether. The buyers of those securities oftentimes didn't know that, and but beneath the surface, when everything was looking just hunky dory. We were getting a sense that uh, there was there was trouble in paradise here. That not everyone 
was making good on those mortgage payments. By 2006, when there had been some skepticism related to some of the originators of mortgages, um, some of those that you know ultimately were part of responsible companies, if you remember, like Countrywide Credit, for example. You know, I would say as early as 2006, there was a concern that a lot of these mortgages were so low quality and that they were being repackaged and sold that despite the fact home ownership, um, you know, was at, at all time high percentage wise, uh, there had been concerns as, as early as let's call it late 2006, that the foundation that these were built on were, were you know, sort of like uh, the picture I think of is like one of these houses on the beach, you know, built on stilts uh, where they have a lot of hurricanes and, uh, and uh, you know, bad weather. I did not come to the FDIC until the summer of 2006. And the cat, the cat was largely out of the bag by that point. Former chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, Sheila Bear. And unfortunately, um, we had our, our staff at the FDIC were, had been watching this for a while. They were worried about it. Um, they they flagged it as an issue. Uh, we immediately started pushing for mortgage lending standards, not just for banks, but for non-banks as well. Um, there was resistance to that. Uh, we're not, we did get some stronger standards for regulated banks, but for non-banks, the Fed was really the only one who could do that. And they just, they just didn't want to do it. So um, it wasn't until 2006 when I started looking at that. But yeah, I mean, as soon as, as, soon as I got to the FGIC, I got, I got worried pretty fast. We got busy pretty fast. You know, anybody who's bought a house now realizes in the past 10 years, it's like they treat you as if you're a criminal. Host of the Clayman Countdown on Fox Business. Liz Clayman. How much do you make every day? What are the chances you'll lose your job? Well, back then, nobody asked anything. In fact, there was this thing that was unofficially called the ninja loan. No income, no job. And you still got a loan. But what people didn't realize is that they didn't read the fine print. And those ninja loans or subprime loans would reset at much higher percentages in a couple of years, depending on the term, and suddenly, when all of these loans began resetting, people realized, I can't afford this mortgage. And they did what nobody expected them to do. They walked away from the homes. Americans used a lot of this cheap credit to buy bigger homes, uh, to get into first homes. Uh, in some cases, it helped make people better off. That was the American dream. But in some cases, it was uh, really facilitated people stretching themselves to a place they didn't belong. Uh, and these became ingredients for the bus that was looming in 2007. Hank Paulson was the, he's a Republican, and uh, he was the chief executive of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he was hired by uh, by George W. Bush to run the Treasury. And so he had a lot of experience on Wall Street and then showed up right as Wall Street was collapsing. So he was in a tricky position. I appreciate the trust you placed in me to lead the Treasury Department at a time when we must ensure that our economy remains strong, our markets remain competitive, and our workers have the opportunity to realize their full economic potential. At the time, obviously, Hank Paulson, uh, uh, former CEO of Goldman Sachs, was in a role, in a government role as uh, Secretary of the Treasury. 
Um, and so it's important to remember when the history is written that although his, um, and he has spoken about this and he has written about this, that he was not acting as a private citizen, um, former head of Goldman Sachs, he was acting as a fiduciary for the US government. Uh, I'm one who believes having you know been in the industry now close to 40 years, you know, it's impossible to separate out things that might have happened in your private life versus your public life. He was a China expert. Chief economist at Moody's Analytics, Mark Zandi. And I think he thought that he'd be spending most of his energies and time on the U.S.-Chinese relationship, but everything got obviously sidetracked. Late last year, it looked like this uh, housing decline might end sooner than it now appears to be, that uh, that uh, this this is... Uh, something that bears watching, and it is, it, and there's no doubt about it. It, it, it is taking a penalty to growth. Uh, it's there's there's a penalty to growth here, and, and by virtue of what's going on in the capital markets, so that's that, that's the biggest risk. But I, I continue to believe uh, we're, we're going to continue to grow, and so I'm I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Stocks slowed their slide after U.S. and foreign central banks poured several hundred billion dollars into the financial system to reassure investors they won't be pinched by a credit squeeze. It's the biggest infusion of cash since the 9-11 attacks, and it's tied directly to subprime mortgage defaults, now about 13% according to some U.S. officials. Europeans are concerned because they bought some of the loans, and their investors are worried because they don't know how many. It's like a black, ma- black, black box, you know, and uh, we don't know what's inside and we don't we have any visibility, so we'll have lots of fears. And when you get uncertainty in the stock market, you find they go one way and that's downward. A lot of people look at toxic assets as assets that were once very, very popular, but fell on hard times. For example, we were talking about mortgages that look good, uh, whether they were subprime or prime, that fell on hard times. Well, a lot of brokerage houses, investment banks would sell those mortgages, uh, what you might call toxic assets, uh, on the open market. And people would buy them up. Uh, Companies would buy them up, repackage them and sell them to other borrowers uh, and other interested bidders. And it was all great when when things were great. But, uh, you know, an uptick in rates, or the first dinging that we see of some customers who are not able to pay back those mortgages or pay them on time, uh, that was toxic. Those assets, those uh, collateralized loan obligations, uh, mortgage-backed securities, some of these things you've heard about uh, that people would buy and sell in the open markets, a package of all this stuff that was essentially financial crap, then began to be an investment that no one wanted to deal with, no one wanted to buy. And all of a sudden, uh, cancer was on the system. One area that has shown particular strain is the mortgage market, especially what's known as the subprime sector. Unfortunately, there's also been some excesses in the lending industry. One of the most troubling developments has been the increase in adjustable rate mortgages that start out with a very low interest rate and then reset to a higher rate after a few years. This has led some homeowners to take out loans larger than they could afford. Based on overly optimistic assumptions about the future performance of the housing market. 
Others may have been confused by the terms of their loan or misled by irresponsible lenders. Whatever the reason they chose this kind of mortgage, some borrowers are now unable to make their monthly payments or facing foreclosure. Washington Mutual took a number of actions uh, in, in, in cons over concerns about a potential housing bubble back in the 2007-2008 uh, period. First thing is beginning in 2003 through 2007, we cut all residential lending by 74%. The second thing we did is we increased the FICO scores, in other words, the quality of the loans each year from 2003 through 2007, so tightened the uh, underwriting standards. Third thing we did is we eliminated uh, virtually all subprime lending during uh, uh, as that period went on. And finally, we went out and raised $11 billion of additional capital to see us through uh, what looked like it was going to be an increasingly turbulent uh, period. So uh, a number of very aggressive uh, actions that we, that we uh, took uh, with what we thought were uh, growing risks. We were the first, but I think Hank was uh, was the most responsive and attentive to our concerns and, and did start seeing it uh, earlier than, than, than some of the folks did at the Fed. And uh, so I think, uh, you know, I, I always appreciate that uh, Hank and I didn't always agree on things, but I thought we had an open, uh, transparent relationship and talked and learned from each other. I think we both uh, benefited from that. So, uh, yeah, and Hank, when we were started, you know, when we realized all these loans had been made and there's no going back on that, we were just going to have these massive defaults, then, then we uh, shifted strategy. And this, again, was something the FDIC led to try to get loan servicers to start making systematic loan modifications. Our economy will continue to grow, but it is facing a number of challenges. And as I've said before, the housing market downturn is the biggest challenge to our economy. When home foreclosures spike, the damage is not limited only to those who lose their homes. Homes in foreclosure can pose costs for whole neighborhoods as crime goes up and property values decline. Avoiding preventable foreclosures then is in the interest of all homeowners. Mortgage market financial innovation has benefited the U.S. economy and U.S. homeowners. It has also introduced some of the challenges we are facing today. Financial innovation led to the creation of mortgage products that put homeownership within the reach of more people. At the same time, innovation also made riskier loans with no down payments or minimal documentation and made these loans more widely available. Similarly, similarly, securitization has brought benefits and challenges, making more capital available to mortgages, but creating greater market complexity. As a result, we now have an array of different market participants, often with different interests. You know, we said, look, you want to you let this mortgage default, go into foreclosure, put more housing stock in the market, drive home prices further. Do you want to do that? Or do you want to try to do a loan workout, at least for the, you know, the owner-occupied, a lot of the subprime was owner-occupied. We want to work with these people living in their house and want to keep it and reduce the payment and see if they can manage the payment because your, your losses are going to be a lot less severe taking a reduced payment through loan modification than just by foreclosing on these homes. So Hank, Hank helped us with that. Originally a little resistant, but then helped us with it. I remember I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and I believe it was October 2007 
calling for systematic loan modifications, got a lot of pushback, a lot of skepticism, but why six months later, <laughs> people were you know, scrambling to try to uh, get better protocols in place to do this. And, and the FDIC did lead the way on that as well, and I'm proud of that. But you know, Hank was responsive and, and gave us public support and instituted a, a treasury program because he had a lot farther, you know, uh, further reach and clout than we did at the FDIC. And we were influential, but mainly in our, you know, our regulated um, banking sphere. Most of our regulated banks were, were community banks. So um, that was it. Was a constructive, uh, it was a constructive relationship, and I appreciate the help he tried to give us on loan modifications. The great growth. Bear Stearns from 2000 to 2007 was recognizing that they could be a tremendous manufacturing uh, a manufacturing business for a lot of these subprime and less than you know quality mortgages. Their clients were were there was demand on their client base to buy this type of um, investment to buy these papers with the higher interest rates. And there was a belief among many of the clients that the risk, you know, by pooling all these various mortgages, that you were you were um, mitigating the risk because if just a if, if just basically a handful of them defaulted, that, that there'd be plenty of um, uh, good paying mortgages. And so, you know, Bear was the architect behind it. Um, they were the leading bank, both from the issuer standpoint as well as uh, an investment bank and creating standpoint. You know, others others began to see the amount of profitability in the space and started to also issue a lot of these mortgages. Merrill Lynch uh, was very aggressive at the time, um, but Lehman Brothers, uh, Goldman Sachs even got into it. And um, so everybody was basically uh, trying to participate because it was a highly profitable segment of the business. You have to understand the personality of investment banks. And when you're talking about the big ones, Let's say Goldman Sachs was considered what they called the white shoe firm, the classy firm, you know, the Royal Academy superstar Tony Award winning bank. And then you get to Bear Stearns. These guys were the gutsy ones. They were slightly smaller, but they played a huge part in the investment banking world in New York. These guys were sort of the sitcom guys with the quick cracks and things like that. But they made a lot of money by taking risks that other banks did not want to take. You know, Bear Stearns was one of the most successful firms on the planet. Uh, it, it, had, it had become the, sort of like the preeminent concern for those who wanted to finance building in this country and uh, massive infrastructure projects. Bear Stearns would invariably be the money supporting that. Uh, it would underwrite and support uh, mall developments, hospital uh, developments, uh, uh, big in, in county government and state government initiatives. Uh, it was the financing that made America move. That was used to be some of the jargon behind it. Good in boom times, not so good when they're not so boom times. Bear Stearns was founded in 1923. It was an investment bank. And Bear Stearns was the first major sign of a troubled market when in June 2007, it reported a 10% drop in quarterly earnings. It was a major red flag in the crisis. I got a call, a phone call from a friend. Host of Making Money on the Fox Business Network, Charles Payne. And when he told me, you know, the the price, it was like, you got to be kidding me. I just, I thought every, I thought he was joking, honestly. Um... 
you know, obviously throughout history, there have been some major firms on Wall Street that have come and gone. Um, I worked at a firm called E.F. Hutton in, in the early 80s, and they were maybe a top five firm. And they actually fell off. And it was kind of hard to believe, but that was sort of a natural, there was a lot of acquisitions, but that was just sort of a natural thing of the company, you know, not, um, you know, not keeping up. This Bear Stearns was something else. This was an indictment against the entire industry. It was a shock to the system. And uh, obviously the ramifications, that wasn't just Wall Street. I mean, obviously, if you worked on Wall Street, if you are on Wall Street, you were shocked. But more importantly, it was just like how unstable the system was. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, as we said in our release, um, you know, Bear Stearns has been uh, subject to a significant amount of uh, rumor uh, and innuendo over the past week. Um, we attempted to try to provide some facts uh, that uh, to the situation, but uh, in the market environment we're in, uh, the, the, the rumors uh, intensified, and given the um, nervousness in the market, uh, a lot of people, it seemed, wanted to act to protect themselves from the possibility of rumors being true uh, and could wait later to see the facts. So although our capital ratios remain in good shape, um, our liquidity situation deteriorated. We started uh, the week and, and, and through the early part of the week uh, we continue to have uh, very strong liquidity, uh, but the concerns uh, on the part of uh, counterparties, uh, on the part of our customers uh, and, and lenders um, got to the point where a lot of people uh, wanted to get cash out. We did not have a lot of uh, first-hand knowledge on the inner workings of, uh, of Bear Stearns. I just didn't do a lot, a lot of activities with them. They had exposures to some of these securities that were both highly leveraged and and uh, and had a uh, a higher than normal percent of subprime loans included in many of those securitizations. And when things started to unravel and become very difficult in 2007 and 2008. I think that they were one of the uh, one of the parties that got into a, ch a liquidity challenge, and the and the uh, the Fed and the other banking regulators needed to step in and uh, and try to help that uh, that lack of liquidity that they had. The Federal Reserve responded by creating new credit facilities for investment banks. Prior to that. The, the Fed could lend only to commercial banks, um, but using the emergency powers that were granted in the 1930s after the Great Depression, created these facilities to be able to uh, extend credit to, to non-bank organizations, for example, in investment banks. And, um, and then um, there was a merger partner with J.P. Morgan Chase, who took over, uh, who took over Bear Stearns, helped to provide um, capital, helped to provide the support necessary, and so Bear Stearns was was stabilized. It did, was not a disorderly uh, disorderly bankruptcy. It was really just sort of taken over. We were responsibly trying to deal with those needs, and we were meeting those needs in every case. Uh, but they accelerated uh, yesterday, especially uh, late in the day. Uh, and as we got through the day, we recognized that at the pace things were going, um, there, there could be continued liquidity demands 
uh, that would outstrip our liquidity resources. Um, in light of that, we felt like we needed to move quickly to allow us time to um, conduct normal operations uh, and calm things down and allow us time to get some more facts out into the marketplace and have people get a chance to assess them. Uh, prior to this period, uh, we had been working with Lazard and company, uh, looking at some alternatives. Uh, in consultation with them, we decided to uh, talk to JP Morgan uh, and uh, talk to them about providing a liquidity facility that will allow us to achieve the objective of calming down the marketplace and giving us a chance to get some facts out into the marketplace. We did not have, we were not consulted about that. Not, we didn't need to be consulted. We were just, our exposure was virtually nil. Sheila Bear. And, um, you know, we didn't regulate beer stirrings. It was an investment bank. It wasn't a federally insured uh, regulated depository. So the New York Fed and Treasury, I believe, really worked hand in hand on that. Uh, I will tell you my observations as a third party that I was concerned. I thought this set, you know, set a bad precedent for the expectation of bailouts. I did not view Bear Stearns as systemic. It was a relatively small investment bank. Um, so why the New York Fed decided to facilitate a sale to J.P. Morgan Chase and provide financial support for that, I did not understand. I, to this day, still think that they should have let Bear Stearns fail. It was early on. It was before things started getting dicey. It would have, you know, sent a strong signal, I think, to these large financial institutions that they needed to get their act together. Jamie Dimon had a busy week last week trying to mollify investors in Bear Stearns who were unhappy with the $2 a share takeout. Um, he basically had two problems he ran into. One was not only upset investors, already shareholder lawsuits coming forward last week, but the other thing was keeping top talent at Bear Stearns post-acquisition. In this particular crisis, we... You know, we made a lot of mistakes and we made some lessons. And, you know, Warren Buffett says when the tide goes out, you know, you see you swimming naked. And we knew it was subprime mortgages, CDOs, some of the model lines were guaranteed it. Uh, and the tide, unfortunately, may still be going out a little bit. And while history may not repeat, it certainly rhymes. So here's the similarities of the crisis, which should never surprise us. Risky assets reprice. Things get volatile. Short-term funding dries up. Certain assets become illiquid, and they become illiquid overnight. I think that's a huge problem we've had this time, too. There's enormous pressure for growth in corporate America, and, you know, grow, 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 and then people sometimes do the wrong thing, and I, and I give tons of examples of that. New products have problems. Okay, that was true with almost every financial product we've ever seen that has own series of problems, and so that goes way back to equities and options and mortgages and... And this time, obviously, subprime, CDOs, and, and a whole bunch of others. And we also started this in the most benign credit environment we've ever seen. So you have to ask yourself the question, well, where did they get the money to hold these instruments? John Hilsenrath. Uh, where does that money come from? So think back to the banks of the Great Depression. They had a very simple model. Uh, mom and pop would deposit their paycheck in the bank. And then the bank would kind of take that money and they would loan it out to the hardware store or to another mom and pop down the street who wanted a mortgage. So mom and pop who deposited were lenders and they expected to be able to pull their money out of the bank whenever they needed it, you know, if they had to pay bills or something like that. Uh, 
the money was tied up in loans to other people. And what the bank was counting on that mom and pop didn't all show up at the same time and say, I want my money back today, right? Well, what we had with Bear Stearns uh, was one of the first examples of a modern run on the American financial system. This is the worst that I've been in the market myself 46 years, never seen anything like it in all my life. Even the crash in 1987 when the stock market lost 30%, at least we knew it was going in one direction. It was all over in three days. Then we saw the Russian credit crisis in 1996. Again, that was a sharp correction, but we came back again. This has been bobbing around like a cork in a bath now for the period of the last three months, and it's very unsettling and very unnerving. And it's all caused, as I say, by fear and uncertainty. Well, it led to a panic. Economist and Fox News contributor Steve Moore. Bear Stearns and some of these other big investment banks started to collapse. Then it was just like dominoes falling, and one after another after another, and there was a panic. It was a full-fledged panic. Government responded uh, under the Bush administration, providing uh, different kinds of fiscal support to the economy, stimulus. Mark Zandi. We didn't know it at the time, but the economy had already entered into recession. It began in January of 2008, but it wasn't clearly evident when you know Bear went under uh, a few months later. Uh, but the but the Bush administration was concerned about what was going on with the economy, uh, and they cut a deal with the the De- Democratic Congress and passed legislation to provide some support to the economy. The uh, the news this morning uh, regarding Bear Stearns is uh, is out on everyone's minds. I'm not prepared here this morning to tell you whether or not the action taken by the Fed and uh, uh, and other financial institutions is the right or wrong move or not. All I do know is it's a reflection of this deepening problem that we're facing, triggered by, of course, uh, the foreclosure crisis in, uh, in, uh, in real estate. I think the perspective of Treasury was really twofold. Uh, one was the idea that Chairman Bernanke suggested that a combination into safe hands would be constructive for the overall marketplace. And number two, since there were uh, federal funds or, or the, the government's money involved, that, the, that, that, that that be taken into account. And Secretary Paulson offered perspective on that. There was a view uh, that the price should not be very high or should be towards the low end, and that it should be, given the, the government's involvement, that that was the perspective. But with regards to the specifics, the actual deal was negotiated, or transaction was negotiated, between the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and the two parties. President Geithner, do you uh, share any light on this at all, and these rumors that have gone around about federal agencies <laughs> recommending a lower price rather than one that was being offered? No, let me just echo what the Chairman and Bob Steele said. Uh, Two objectives very important for us. One was there'd be an agreement reached that would avert the risk of default because of the consequences for the economy as a whole. And the second was that the outcome, to the extent possible, not add to the inherent moral hazard risk in this kind of intervention. And I, I, I just, from my perspective, the outcome reached that evening and the subsequent uh, agreement reached a week later are fully consistent with those two objectives. One of the reasons cap- capitalism works is because ultimately you have to do right by the end user, the consumer. If not, they'll go somewhere else and get a different product. So if you want to make a car and you want to skimp on the brakes and people know that your car doesn't have good brakes, they won't buy your car. Wall Street has been able to find itself in a position where there's no real alternative per se. 
Uh, and you would think, well, the different firms would say, I'm going to come up with a good stock, you know, or better stock or better research. And yet it feels like when one goes off the rails and is making a lot of money doing it, <laughs> the rest of them kind of say, look at that. <laughs> and, you know, and so I've always said, listen, I'm, I consider myself the Pied Piper of the market. I, I've been asking people and encouraging people to invest for 30 years. Um, but I also admit that it's not. It's not a fair game, per se. It's not a level playing field. And uh, beyond that, you know, you, you, but you have to participate, but never, ever 100% trust Wall Street. Next time on Fox News Rewind, financial crisis, 08. Some commercial and investment banks and the government-sponsored enterprises have reported substantial losses and write-downs, reducing the capital they have to support new lending. There were problems in the summer of 2008 that were bubbling under the surface, serious problems. While both presidential candidates support the bailout, both suggest it's in the nature of Washington lobbying that the two GSEs got too big to let fail. If you think you're going to need capital, don't be looking for the government to to, to help you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.